This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, February 19th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Children should be entitled to spend time roaming free, and parents should be entitled to let them. Lenore Skenazy, a leader of the free-range kids movement, believes that clever marketing, frightening news, and the fear of government retribution have conspired to keep parents from letting their children be as free and self-reliant as they ought to be. We spoke earlier this month. In my own experience, I I know young people who are resilient, they are robust, they own their own mistakes, they don't they don't like it, but they don't mind hearing people strongly disagree with them, but and I read in media reports of uh, young people who are quite the opposite. And I have trouble uh, reconciling those two things, but I also, I guess I have trouble meet, reading and understanding and really believing the reports about just how fragile young people are today. So can you help me sort that out? Sure. You know, fragile is a, a sort of fraught word, and maybe the word would be particularly sensitive to hurt. And the nice part is that I think they are really concerned about not hurting anyone's feelings and being decent people and thinking about the world in a in a fair and just way. And the disturbing part is when you start sort of thinking that everybody is so easily hurt that you can't say anything, that somebody coming on campus and giving a speech that uh, you might, you not only might you disagree with it, but a friend might disagree with it or feel hurt by it, that that becomes so overwhelming that it's intolerable. And that's when you're hearing about people, you know, protesting, you know, Christina Hoff Summers coming to campus or seeking a safe space because an anti-feminist or whatever is going to be speaking at Brown. So I agree. I don't think it's everybody, but I think there is a certain um, fragment of the college population that is easily hurt or worried about others being easily hurt. And then uh, the effect is that the whole campus doesn't get to hear the speakers or disinvite somebody who is going to come to graduation or protests that words are violence. And words are words. And of, of course they can hurt, but they're not literally violence. And, and free speech is, is the answer. It's not the problem. And so we don't want kids feeling that free speech is so painful or so unsafe that they have to shut it down. Oh, what of the young people who make the this case that, look, you people who have these uh, awful or controversial things to say, you can say those things, but we're not going to allow you to say them on our campus? Well, saying if, if uh, the, the reason that people are protesting speakers who are coming to campus is because they were already invited to campus. And so that's an invitation that has been... Um, proffered by someone on campus who did want to hear them, maybe only to hear a differing viewpoint from what they think or what their professors think. And so if somebody is already coming to campus, you don't have to go if you don't like them, or you can go and raise your hand and ask some questions, do some you know, reporting beforehand, find out what it is that you think this person is going to say and what are some of the arguments against them. And, and then you have a dialogue. And uh, this gets to be really boring as, 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 as a, a point of chat uh, because we I think everybody agrees that you can hear somebody speak, disagree with them, and have a productive argument. And I guess what worries me is when simply the idea of arguing has become so scary or discomforting 
to young people that already that seems wrong. And um, one of the reasons that I think that young, some young people today, I want to keep saying some because it's obviously not all, and I know some very robust young people too, and I, I hope I'm raising a couple. Um, but one of the reasons some people might feel less comfortable with an argument or with assuming that even if somebody feels bad hearing something that, of course, they'll bounce back um, is because the way we've been told to raise our kids, and I don't blame helicopter parents, I blame a society that has been telling us that we must raise our kids as if they are fragile. And my favorite example from the real world is a Parents Magazine article that came out, it must be literally three years ago by now, that was called the Playdate Playbook. And as if playdates are so hard, but it was went on and on and on. It was a several-page article with different kinds of questions about different kinds of playdates. And uh, one of them was, my daughter is old enough to stay home alone for her by herself for shortest amount short amounts of time. So now she's having a playdate over. Can I still run off and go to the dry cleaners? And Parents Magazine wrote back, absolutely not. What if there's a squabble? You want to be able to jump in. And to me, that that's everything in a nutshell. That is, first of all, completely enslaving the mom. She can't even go and pick up the dry cleaning because a second away from her child puts the child in peril. Secondly, it's completely undermining our belief in our kids because kids do squabble. They have their friends over. They argue, I want to play Barbie. You want to play Nintendo, whatever it is. They're going to have an argument, and they're going to have to work their way through it and that's part of friendship, and it's also part of learning how to deal with the world. And what I feel is that by telling parents that their children can't handle even the everyday sturm und drang of a friendship, um, we've put ourselves into the mix. And we've told them that, A, they are fragile, and B, they must look to somebody else to solve their problems, and, and see if they're feeling uncomfortable, something is dramatically wrong, something that should be righted immediately by somebody standing on the sidelines. And that's what I worry has come to campus. And the example that came to mind pretty immediately for me of that on campus was when um, Erica Christakis at Yale wrote the infamous memo saying that you just got 11 different administrators telling you what costumes to wear on, on Halloween and that you must be very cognizant of what could be hurtful and what could be culturally insensitive, et cetera. Um, I think you can probably figure out on your own <laughs> what your costume should be. And if it turns out that somebody's offended, well, they'll talk to you and you'll talk to them and you'll figure it out and you'll either you won't do it again or they'll realize no harm was intended. You give everybody the benefit of the doubt. You have conversations and you move on. And the students became incensed because they felt that this was inappropriate. <laughs> My favorite word, <laughs> that word that has uh, dominated uh, childhood for the last 20 years. And that, uh, in fact, administrators should be telling 19 and 20 year olds what to wear on Halloween. And because Halloween is actually, I call it like the test market for all of our parenting fears and obsessions. And in fact, everything about Halloween has turned into a big deal, even among young kids um, in the real world. Like you're not supposed to send your kids outside without a chaperone and you have to be careful that their costume isn't too big because they could trip or too small because they could asphyxiate and don't wear a mask because it could occlude their vision and make sure they eat a giant 
pile of quinoa before they go out because you don't want them eating any candy before they come home and test it for the poison that has never been found in candy. And instead of sending the kids outside, let's put them in a circle with surrounded by cars with their trunks open and we'll have a trunk or treat and it's just the same except we get to watch them every second and make sure that they're eating only the right candy and we, we're with them and they're not going door to door so they're not dragged into houses and raped and killed, which is all a fantasy because that doesn't happen. And so... It was so interesting to me that even on campus, students were very upset that there wasn't adult, um, not even supervision, adult dictation of how they should act and what they should wear on Halloween. And I feel that that has bubbled up from this childhood that we were told to give our kids, which was completely supervised and structured for their own safety. So it's not a surprise they get to campus and it doesn't feel safe unless somebody is telling them what to do. I have a little one. Uh, about a year ago, uh, we had our first child, so she's not exactly in the same cohort as uh, the, the folks that you're describing. But but we do our best even, uh, you know, and I've, I've read your work for a long time, and we do our best to make, even in the smallest possible ways, the consequences of her actions, again, within reason, uh, to be the natural consequence of, of certain actions that you take. Well, that's, you know, don't touch that or don't slam your finger in that um, and, and try to allow, uh, without some permanent damage, those things to just mm -hmm. play out. Well, that makes sense to me. <laughs> and, and I don't, and I, and I just, I don't, I wonder, and I don't know to what extent I've witnessed this or in what ways these things happen in very small ways that are sort of imperceptible, because I haven't been a parent before, but it is, the, is the type of parenting that you're talking about where there are clear rules where every parent must signal that they're a great parent, and the only way to do that is to scrupulously obey advice from Fretful Mother magazine or <laughs> right. Uh, right. It, Simpsons it, reference. I got it. I mean, has, <laughs> it, has it actually changed that much, really? Yeah, yeah, I think it has. And, um, and I'm not just going to start quoting all the articles about, you know, kids are more depressed and anxious and seeking out help more. I mean, I, I'm not against people seeking out help, but the numbers seem to be off the charts. Um, first of all, I don't think it's signaling. I don't think the parents are signaling I'm a great parent. I think they really are getting this advice because there is a glut of um, advice books and there are objects out there that need to be sold. And the only, the easiest way to get a dollar from anybody is to tell a parent that their child is in danger. And then, of course, a parent will do anything they can to try to ensure their safety. And so you have a kid who's a year old. I'll bet she's starting to walk or is she? I mean, I don't even know. I don't want to make you nervous. Maybe they don't walk till, till 18 months. I have no idea. But the point is at some point she will be toddling. And in any other era in human history, that involves, you know, you holding on to her a little and then sometimes she just tries to lurch towards the, the coffee table and you let go and, and that's it. And now... If you go to Babies R Us, uh, which is a store filled with 10,000 different baby items, uh, a store that didn't exist when baby was me, and one of the items you can buy there is something called walking wings. And it's like a little uh, sort of a puffy vest that has a, 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 like a leash on both shoulders attached. So you can pull your child up with this thing like a marionette and then walk them across the room and 
on the box, I wish I had it in front of me because I sometimes bring it to lectures. It says, you know, helps children walk more naturally <laughs> and, um, and, and also cuts down on falls. And once again, sort of with this laser vision of what is society telling us, it's telling us something is more natural that is absolutely not natural. Nobody had walking wings until somebody started marketing them uh, for $29.95 on Amazon. And, and um, cutting down on falls make, implies that this is something you want for your kid, that somehow falling when they're learning how to walk is bad. And so that is, once again, sort of an encapsulation of what we've been telling parents to believe about their kids, that they are fragile, <laughs> that if they fall, oh, my God, don't let them fall. But in fact, falling is how you get the incentive to walk better <laughs> because you don't want to keep falling. That's a drag. I would rather not hurt my knees or my butt every time I try to get somewhere. So I'm going to try to toddle a little harder. And so much of child development is hardwired into the things that kids would normally be doing, especially playing on their own without somebody organizing the t-ball league or the little league or um, the chess tournament. They would be coming up with games on their own, negotiating how to make a team, figuring out what to play, deciding it's boring, trying to make it a little harder, climbing a tree, that's not scary enough, climbing a little higher because you dose yourself with risk and then you're so thrilled that you went a little higher that now you're a more confident person. And we've taken so much of that out of our kids' lives to quote unquote keep them safe that in fact we've made them a little more fragile because they're not used to taking as many risks, and they're not used to organizing their games, and they're not used to having to hold it together for the sake of keeping the game going as opposed to having a, a parent or a coach go in there and, just like the mom in the parent magazine article, you know, solve the problem, intervene in the argument. And that, I think, is detrimental to kids. I don't think it's killing anybody. I don't think it's going to... Um, you know, ruin our entire country, but I do feel that it is unnecessary to act as if somehow this generation of kids is incapable of doing all the things that not only did we do as kids, but we remember them so fondly. Oh, I'd get on my bike and I'd ride to my friend's house. I'd, you know, I felt like the king of the world or I once got lost. It was so scary and I got home and now we're tracking them because we don't want them to ever go off that track. And there's bells and alarms that ring on our, our iPhones if we've put in their, you know, the, the, the geo fence of where they're allowed to walk and they're not allowed to walk. And if they're walking someplace wrong, we call them up. And there are, there are devices that not only call up the child, but can hear what's going on. Even if the kid hasn't answered the phone, you can hear who she's talking to and what the other person is saying on the assumption that mom or dad should be there. Even if we can't be there corporeally, we must be there, you know, electronically because our kids can't handle anything. It's that our kids can't handle anything physically, emotionally, socially without us intervening that I think is, let's just say unnecessary, but possibly damaging. I, I think we've discussed this before. And, you know, the human brain seems to be built for a certain level of stress. And as, as the Russians said a long time ago, Americans don't have real problems, so they have to make some up. Um, is part of this just the, the, the transition of children as uh, farmhands to being uh, consumer goods for parents? I mean, combine that with the amount of wealth that Americans typically are able to enjoy. Is, is that part of the issue, that, that children have become precious in that way? 
Well, yeah. I mean, there's so many things. When you talk about, oh, what did you just say? That we have all this wealth. Well, part of the problem of wealth is that we were just talking about it before. When there's money sitting there, somebody will figure out how to get it. And the way to get it is to make parents nervous. So I'm while I believe that there is some level of nervousness that's inevitable, and boy, am I nervous in cars. I just hate cars. Um, the you know, the programming of what is the worry going to be and the programming to this level of worry. I mean, this is a level of worry that I just spoke to a, a classroom of fifth graders and uh, in a suburban area. And I asked them how many are allowed outside on their own, like, uh, you know, just in front of their house. And practically everybody raised their hand, which made me happy. That was the, the kids were about 10 or 11. I said, how many of you are allowed to walk around the corner on your own? And almost every hand went down. There were about four or five hands left up. And I thought, this, this is unusual, <laughs> that people who moved to a suburban neighborhood where they could raise their kids in what's considered a very safe middle-class neighborhood with very low crime level can't even allow their kids to walk around the corner. It's, it's a societally-wide thing that is going on. It's not that each individual parent suddenly became a nervous wreck or a neurotic jerk. It's that something has told them that even going around the corner is unsafe. And that's a level we just haven't seen before. And I think part of the reason going back to what's causing it is not only are they precious, children are always precious, but there's fewer of them and there's more money. But the message that we're getting to sell us all this stuff in these safe times, you you know, you have to make it seem unsafe or you can't sell things to assuage the fear. So now there are so many electronic devices that are, are advertised with, at last, you can have peace of mind. And I'll, I'm going to tell you two of them really quick. One of them is called the Owlet. And it's a little, weirdly, an electronic sock you put on your baby, your healthy baby. We're talking about healthy babies when they're in the crib. So A, they're healthy. B, they're not going anywhere because they're in a crib. And C, they're going to sleep. And while they're asleep, it gives you a readout all night long or all day long if they're napping of their temperature, movement level, heart rate, and blood oxygen level, which used to be something that you would all, I, I mean, I've never, I don't know my blood oxygen level. And Do you? No. Okay. You know who knows blood oxygen levels is the nurses who are watching it closely when a child is in neonatal intensive care. But this is a product that's marketed to parents of healthy kids, and not only healthy kids, healthy kids in an enclosure while they're sleeping. And and the website for the for this particular device used to say, but they changed their verbiage, um, but it used to say, just because her chest is going up and down doesn't mean your little one is getting enough oxygen. So what you have there is you cannot trust your own breathing, healthy, sleeping child according to today's marketplace. And so that's a level of fear that's just outrageous. How dare they say that to parents? You know, you're a new parent. How dare somebody suggest that your child sleeping and breathing in the crib still is in grave danger and you better be watching that printout or that uh, readout on your iPhone all night long or woe betide you. So so it's, yes, we're, we're wired to worry, but our, our worries are being directed by a marketplace that, that knows no bounds. And, um, oh, God, I was going to tell you about another product. 
Oh, yeah. So um, in, in terms of like these products are marketed to quote unquote give you peace of mind, there was one of these geo trackers that was marketed to parents and it said, uh, from the time your child leaves school to the three blocks walking home, we know you're a nervous wreck. It's so terrible to think of all the things that could happen in those five minutes. Wouldn't it be great to finally have peace of mind knowing that for those three awful, crazy, terrifying, you know, danger-filled moments, your child is safe? And that's a rewriting of the walk home from reality to Stephen King, so or to Law and Order, or to CSI. And so parents are nervous, and we are wired to want our children to survive beyond, uh, beyond us, let's put it baldly. But, but that's what, what we're being told to worry about is very safe stuff. And we're told you can't just think it's very safe, you must think it's dangerous. Yeah, because because I, I imagine you know marketers sitting around in a room talking about how to sell a product that is relatively useless, and they say, "Look, we know your kid's going to get abducted. All kids do get abducted. That's just that's just how the world is now." But uh, my question to you for for parents who one know that this is overkill deep in their brains, and yet still feel the tug of, well, maybe I'm just not a good parent if I don't. Uh, lojack my kid um what are some either tools or information that they need in order to remain conscientious as parents who to and everybody wants to raise capable children uh raise capable adults i should say and uh not give in to the kind of marketing that we see in this area okay i'm going to tell you that the sad fact is that me Spouting all my wisdom and crime stats, our crime rate is back to 1963, uh, you know, the rarest of crimes is a stranger danger, uh, doesn't happen to move the needle, <laughs> alas. So what does? Well, 10 years of looking at this issue, I've found that the only thing that changes parents is their kids. And what I mean by that is when either sometimes it's accidentally and sometimes it's deliberate. And I'm going to give you a deliberate way to, to make yourself braver and feel confident in your child and the world and generally happier in a second. But the point is that once your kid does something on their own, it is so fantastic that you are so proud and so filled with this ethereal joy that you can't believe it. And after that, this this ball of ice of fear that has been building up around you, thanks to all the stuff we were talking about before, it cracks. It cracks because the joy just melts it or something. And so here's an, an accidental example, and then I'll tell you how I'm actually trying to make this happen in real life in an easy way for parents to um, let go a little. So there was I was once talking to actually a Washington Post columnist because we were talking about the Métis case where the parents had let the kids walk home from the park twice and were arrested and investigated for negligence. Anyway, so so the columnist starts telling me, you know what happened the other day? It's funny you should mention it. Her son was eight, and he was supposed to stay at school after school, but the carpool lady thought that he was supposed to come with her, so she put him in the car with her other kids. She dropped him off at the house while the house was locked. The, the columnist mom thought that nobody was coming home that day. So the boy gets there. The, the car has driven off. He doesn't have a cell phone. Door's locked. Doesn't know what to do. So he decides, okay, he'll walk about three blocks away is a little convenience store. 
And the mom starts getting phone messages, you know, phone calls on her cell phone from a number she doesn't recognize. So she doesn't pick it up. <laughs> and they call, doesn't pick it up. They call, who's bothering her? They call. Finally, she picks it up. Who is this? And it's like, oh, ma'am, I'm, uh, you know, I'm Mr. Kim. I'm at your local grocery store. Your son is here. What? What? My son is there. What do you mean? And he's like, well, apparently he was like, I got locked out. No, he's supposed to be at school. What happened? He said, I don't know, but he's here. And so the mom got into her car and raced over and opens the door and goes to the back. And there he is with the guy, with the grocer, putting the meat on the shelves, helping out. So happy. So proud. He'd come there. He explained the problem. That's why they started calling her. He had a snack with them. He did his homework, and then he still had nothing to do. And they said, well, why don't you help us, you know, stock the meat on the shelves? And for everybody, that was the greatest day on earth. I mean, the mom saw how incredibly competent her kid was. The kid felt like, look what I could do. And after that, you don't see them as a baby anymore. And the problem with our society is that we've buried all these normal things that kids could do, walk to school, walk the dog, ride your bike to the library, under this, this, this silt of fear, and we don't even see the landmarks, the, the, the milestones anymore. And so the thing that I'm trying to get schools to do now, because it's so effective and it's free and it's fast, is do what I call the Let Grow Project, which is simply the teachers tell the kids, to go home and ask their parents if they can do one thing <laughs> that they feel they're ready to do that for some reason they haven't done yet. And it could be like, like we just said, go to the store, run an errand, go to your friend's house, go to the park with a friend and, and play ball for a little while. And because the school says to do it and because all the other kids are doing it, which means all the other parents are doing it, this, <sighs> this allows the parents to finally let their kid go. A little bit. And once again, when the kid comes home and they got the bread for dinner or they got the milk or they had a great time at their friend's house, the parent is levitating with pride. And after that, they can't remember, why did I think it was, why did I think he couldn't go to the store? I just talked to a lady yesterday who started doing it once again with her nine-year-old. And she said, once she let him go to the store, now he goes to the store for everything. Because once you see how competent your kids are, the fear that had was so out of whack with reality goes away. It's like when your kid starts walking, you don't want them to start crawling again. It's like once they're walking, you're glad they're walking and things change. So the only thing that really changes parents is their kids. <laughs> and that's why I really recommend this project. <clears throat> Someone I know who is at the Libertas Institute in Utah, his name is Connor Boyack, and he um, has talked about a new law that went into effect in Utah, which relates to uh, businesses operated by children. And uh, essentially, the law is that there is zero or close to zero regulation of businesses run by people who are under 18. And so, uh, you know, we've all read these stories about lemonade stands getting shut, shut down for health code violations or not having the proper license and licenses and things like that. Is, um, you know, fretful parenting or uh, you know, helicopter parenting – is that appropriate in a world where children are going to be bombarded with demands for compliance from their government? I think you have to raise independent kids. I, one, of the, one of our working hypotheses is that if you don't grow up with freedom, you fear it because it seems chaotic. Nobody's telling you what to do. There's no, you know, you just, it's just unfamiliar. If you've only been in 
Little League and suddenly you have a ball and everybody's throwing the ball around. You're like, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where's the coach? You know, what position am I supposed to play? Who decides if it's in or out? So if you grow up with freedom, I think you're much more prepared for the real world where you will have to decide things for yourself and be a responsible adult and take the initiative. So I, I applaud Connor and Utah for that. And I, I, I thank God you mentioned Utah because I have to say what passed unanimously in the Utah House, unanimously passed, was what they call the Free Range Kids Bill. And since it already unanimously passed the Senate, it is going to the governor's desk. The Free Range Kids Bill says this. Our children have the right to some unsupervised time, and we have the right to give it to them without getting arrested. So parents who are worried that they don't want to be like the Métis, investigated by Child Protective Services for letting their kids play outside, or Deborah Harrell, who let her kid play on a at a park at age nine and was thrown in jail for this, or I can, I don't want to give you the litany of this, but parents have been investigated as if they are negligent simply because they trust their kids to to be part of the world, which is what we want our kids to be. So Utah is going to be the first state in the country to guarantee that you don't get a free pass if you actually are a negligent parent or if you are an abusive parent, but if you're a, a rational, decent parent who says, well, look, I trust you to go get the bread, or, oh, my God, we're out of toilet paper, run and get some, that doesn't get you arrested. So all kudos to Utah, to Senator Lincoln Fillmore, state senator of Utah, who sponsored the bill, and to Connor Boyack and the Libertas Institute, who helped push for it. Lenore Skenazy blogs at freerangekids.com. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 